1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of South Asian Studies on the New Books Network. This is your host, Madhuri. And today we'll be speaking with Leo Coleman about his new book, A Moral Technology, Electrification as Political Ritual in New Delhi. Welcome to New Books Network, Leo.
0: Thank you, Madhuri. Thank you so much for this invitation. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: So... Thank you for being here. And why don't you begin by telling us about how you came to be an anthropologist?
0: Um, That's, you know, always a fascinating biographical fact full of contingencies. Uh, I took a very rewarding set of anthropology classes as an undergraduate in college. Um, I was looking for a career, a pathway, a discipline that would allow me to bring together uh, my sort of aesthetic interests, um, my interests in books and literature and art, and also get me out into the world. And anthropology provided the perfect combination. um, And certainly, you know, at that moment in time when so much attention was still being paid and is still being paid to the form of ethnography as a literary form. That was really what uh, excited me. But um, soon thereafter, I started getting deeper and deeper into the history and uh, uh, society of South Asia. And those two things just sort of catalyzed uh, uh, what is now uh, my career.
1: (laughs) Um And, what specifically drew you to this fascinating project on electricity and state formation and, you know, the material and moral meanings of infrastructure and specifically New Delhi? Uh,
0: New Delhi was uh, the site uh, where I first landed in India uh, as, uh, as a tourist, um, As a a very, very early stage graduate student, Um, I was already interested in India. I was thinking about doing field research there. And I just kept circling back to the city as I traveled uh, to explore, you know, uh, other parts of North India. And uh, uh, there, at that moment, there was a very prominent public politics around the recent privatization of the electricity system. And at that point, you know, uh, questions around globalization, the retreat of the state, the form of state power in an era of privatization and neoliberalism were, uh, and continue, of course, to be very prominent in my uh, prospectus for my doctoral research, which is what this book grows out of, though it's much transformed from that research, I uh, remember saying to my committee, we're all sick and tired of talking about neoliberalism, but I'm going to keep doing it. <laughs> and I think the, the, the urgency of the kinds of questions around privatization, uh, decentralization, uh, changing topographies of governance and changing ways in which citizens interact with their government which is really what animated my interest in electricity in the first place. How does it get transformed from being a public service, from being a state concern, a infrastructure for civic life, to being an object of profit and property?
1: Right. And you draw on a very eclectic theoretical universe in your work. So, you know, ranging from Agamben and Hannah Arendt to... Mary Douglas and Clifford Geertz, and then you have the philosopher an whitehead so why don 't you tell us a little more about how you went about assembling this toolkit?
0: Well, uh, if I can make a confession it wasn 't entirely systematic um, it was uh, the book is a record both of a uh, theoretical and uh, disciplinary set of questions about state formation um, and how that is organized around things like fundamental provision of infrastructure in cities um, but it's also the product of a uh, really a, a wide array of questions about anthropology as an interpretive science um, how do we grasp the meaning that people make as they interact with each other and with the things of their world um, and how our local worlds, local cosmologies graspable uh, uh, through uh, this sort of unique uh, uh, research practice of long-term ethnography and also ethnographic reading of historical materials, which is a large part of what I do as well. So it's really uh, the, the interest in Agamben, um, the interest in Geertz, the interest in uh, Whitehead's uh, you know, sort of uh, unique uh, 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 processual ontology, all, all of these converge uh, around the way in which each of these scholars, uh, each of these philosophers really, or, or theorists, is thinking about uh, uh, the, the, the emergence of meaning through uh, 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 interaction, through collective performances, and through rituals which is uh, uh, really where I enter, uh, uh, I think, the, the broader philosophical conversation is around uh, the, the question of, of what a ritual is and how it represents, uh, for us scholars, a, a site of collectivity, of, of, of the making of a community.
1: Right, and... To now delve more deeply into the book itself, you structure it around these three historical and ethnographic case studies, right? So you have an account of colonial electrification, right, and all its pomp and splendor led by Lord Cousin, and then you move on to analyzing a set of constitutional debates around legislation and how electrification in this new fledgling nation state should be organized. And then in the last section, you discuss neighborhood resident welfare associations, right? And this path of anti-privatization activism that they undertake. So I appreciated how you, as you lay out your primary materials, you say that, you know, these might seem like a chronological account of technological progress, right A sequential reading is perhaps the obvious one as you um see these uh, sets of data. but then you also suggest something else.
0: Yes. Uh, Well, the the challenge in conceiving this project as a book, and let me just go back to one step to say that uh, I first started looking at colonial history and looking at constitutional debates because the uh, people I was talking to in Delhi uh, who were engaged in activism around this new privatized electricity infrastructure, they weren't exactly anti-privatization. They were Uh, challenging the installation of new metering technologies. They were complaining about high bills. It was a consumer activism that I was following. Um, They kept referring to the way things used to be. And not just in the immediate past. I spoke to activists and engineers who made very large claims about how great colonial electricity had been. Um, There was a sort of nostalgia for a, a functioning state, which is often... Uh, in, in a post-colonial sort of framework, troped as something that uh, uh, the colonial state provided despite not providing democracy. So there is this sort of this series of interesting conversations about state form, about politics, about what democracy, uh, uh, what trade-offs we had to uh, uh, engage in in order to arrive at mass democracy, particularly in the post-colonial and Indian context. And these conversations were what sent me into the archive, not to prove or disprove what my interlocutors were telling me, But to sort of ask a question about how do these uh, uh, claims, uh, uh, how can I take these claims into the archive and learn something about these longer-term processes and learn something about the way in which certain claims about technology were made in the colonial period that still resonate in public culture today. So I was looking back to sort of learn something about the interpretive relationship to electricity, in particular, as it provided a way of thinking about the state and provided a way of thinking about what was state provision. What does it mean for the state to provide the conditions for urban life? Now, looking back to the colonial period, immediately caught me in a problem, to answer your question about uh, the the historiography of my book, It immediately trapped me in a problem where I was being expected by my own audience um, of readers to provide a history of technological change, to track the installation of very particular kinds of technological devices, and that... Seemed to imply very often it was a sort of, you know, anxiety-ridden writing process because I kept getting trapped in these tropes where I was talking about the progress of technology an old, inadequate, direct current system that was installed by a British company in Delhi at the beginning of the 20th century gets replaced by a more up-to-date alternating current system, right? A three-phase system, Um, those sorts of claims, which were, you know, ethnographically salient as well in my research, um, however, I didn't want to reproduce that notion of an ongoing progress of technology, a, a continuous replacement of a technological world, the technological sensorium, with something better, newer, faster, cheaper. That was the 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 the. Uh, uh, sort of interpretive danger that I was trying to skirt by breaking my research up into discrete and non-contiguous case studies. That said... Uh, there is inevitably, and I, I, I talk a little bit about this in the introduction to the book, there is inevitably a, uh, a, a way in which history and uh, uh, hi- historical sequence imposes itself. In very early drafts of the book, I experimented with starting with the ethnography and then circling back to the history, following. The uh, progress of my research using that as a structure for the book, but ultimately it just didn't work it was too it was too, It was too confusing to move from the you know uh, global private neoliberal and then sort of circuit back to the colonial as if the colonial explained something about it, which wasn't an effect I wanted to achieve either
1: right, and you know the challenge is particularly acute when As an ethnographer, you want to write against the teleologies that these debates have uh, been so long steeped in. And then at the same time, your historical interlocutors like Nehru and Ali are themselves so... Inspired and caught up in this romance and promise of technology, right? And in your second section, you write about how for Nehru, the connection between freedom and technology was an extremely vital one, right? It wasn't just that, yes, we'll get technology and then, you know, it'll be good for people, our villages will be lit, but rather that. There will be moral advancement, right? That this will lead to an expansion in political participation and, in fact, even guide a better sense of citizenship. So as an interpreter, as an analyst, how did you through your readings of, you know, Nehru's writings and, you know, other nationalists make that leap yourself in your analysis?
0: That's a really excellent question. And I think it's uh, a fundamental one for engaging in an interpretive ethnographic history of uh, the Indian state, because it is so uh, uh, saturated with these, really ex- exquisitely raw narratives that uh, people like Nehru generated, um, used as the raw material for his political performances as prime minister, as leader of the state of India. His speeches draw extensively on his historical thought, his discovery of India, um, the writing that he did uh, uh, while he was imprisoned by the colonial government. These uh, uh, interpretive moves that he makes to connect the uh, development of a uh, large uh, industrialized economic center to the idea of national freedom, to the idea of moral advancement is something that shapes, I think, uh, uh, both practices of and understandings of the Indian state for decades. Now, Again, the challenge is not just to accept that at face value as a description of the truth, but I think the context that where I was coming to these questions, um, obviously, I'm a, I'm a fan of, of Nehru's writing, um, I, I wanted to find a way to write sympathetically about the ambitions that he held out and that I found in the ethnographic record, uh, ethnographers sort of sidelights on contemporary India, uh, many, many people writing in the 50s and 60s about village India, finding uh, uh, interesting encounters in those texts between the ethnographer and villagers seeking uh, access to the goods of modernity. I wanted to write sympathetically about the the uh, ambitions and dreams that Nehru projected, but also about how those were lived out in everyday life in, uh, in that moment of post-colonial India and or post-independence India. And I wanted to do that because I felt like uh, there was evidence ethnographically that there was a, uh, a, a nation-building moment that was affective and ritual and was widely embraced. And I felt like a the desire not to be caught by the teleologies of the modern progress of technology had, in fact, led a lot of critics to be more skeptical than perhaps they they, they ought to be about uh, uh, the, the 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 political power of the Nehruvian sort of uh, 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 story of uh, the the possible future of a technological industrial India. Now, obviously, Nehru's vision was an ideological and all. a a highly, uh, highly time-bound one. It was shaped by his own experiences, anticipations, uh, his own conversations about the power of technology with a lot of critics, not least of whom, of course, is Gandhi. But um, those uh, uh, conversations or uh, those, those stories that he, uh, the the history that he projected forward for India, I think, deserved closer attention because it resonated also so, so closely with the uh, actual debates about how to regulate electricity and for whom and and for what purposes in the Constituent Assembly that I study in the middle part of the book. And I should just briefly explain that the Indian Constituent Assembly, which sat until the... uh, creation of the Indian Constitution in the very early 1950s, late 40s, um, was also a legislative body. It wasn't just a constitution writing body. It acted as the government of India. So you had this fascinating historical moment where uh, the leaders of the Indian National Movement, including Nehru and Ambedkar and others, are both engaged in very, very careful legal analysis of the developing constitution of a free India, and at the same time, legislating quite practically for how the institutions, particularly in my case, the electricity institutions of the new uh, state should be organized. So I found that conjuncture I think, a way to think about some of these teleologies uh, in a more creative way, because there was a pragmatic moment in the uh, late 1940s, where both the constitutional future of the country, uh, projecting a sort of image of progress and freedom and liberty, and the regulation of the uh, pragmatic and practical institutions of that future uh, were being discussed at the same time. I just will say one more thing, which is that I, I love the uh, debates that go back and forth in the Constituent Assembly when they're talking about, in, in legislative session, when they're talking about things like public utilities and electricity services and whatnot, they, the conversations about uh, uh, what, 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 does the, what does a telephone provide in terms of political freedom? What does an electricity system provide in terms of political freedom? I just found those really enrapturing to read and think about
1: including one, I think, uh, where uh, a representative from Delhi says that, you know, it's time um, old Delhi is no longer just the maid of New Delhi. That's the government enclave in this argument where, um, you know, they were talking about how Delhi deserves to have its own municipal government that exerts control over its urban infrastructure. So I thought that was a very vivid um, metaphor. Yeah. Uh, the, the,
0: there are these, uh, I, I'm not going to be able to put my finger on the exact uh, debate right now, but uh, there are these very uh, fraught debates, actually in constitutional session, uh, over Uh, What the form of government for New Delhi, for Delhi, uh, the the whole conurbation of Delhi, old and new, how should that be organized? And uh, how should it be... in this day and age the assembly members say in this moment so it's a, it's a historical claim it's a claim about the temporality of the community uh, collectively but not just the national community not just india in the abstract very concretely, the men and women who live in Delhi, who no longer will just be the uh, adjunct to a pompous and separate government sphere, but will constitute it and will become the bureaucrats and the uh, citizens of these new national institutions. It's a a very powerful moment, and the uh, representative from Delhi himself says explicitly that we need to be able to control our infrastructures in order to achieve these uh, new forms of citizenship.
1: Right, that, you know, infrastructures and public services are and should be sites of um, collective self-determination, right? In that same section, and you mentioned this uh, briefly just now, you draw on this... um, fascinating ethnographic record, right, of classic uh, monographs by sociologists like McKim Marriott and Pocock and Dumont. And I think we as students don't read enough of this literature anymore, you know, perhaps considered passé in some circles, but I really appreciated how you brought these debates back into circulation in relation, of course, to your larger argument. And I'm curious, what uh, drove you to this literature?
0: Um,
1: It's actually where
0: I, I I, I came to South Asian studies and the study of India through a somewhat... uh, uh, classical approach to the study of Indian civilizations. So the very first things I studied, actually, um, this might be a a terrible confession, but the very first things I studied were debates over caste and the reality of caste and uh, its historical existence, theorizing it, understanding its transformations in the present, understanding it both as practice and system. Um, And so I read a lot of Dumont when I was an undergraduate. And I never obviously i have all sorts of uh, uh engagements now far beyond dumont and, and and i'm interested in the uh you know the critique of uh that textualist approach to indian civilizations in particular but i in this book uh the reason i turned back to those texts is because i knew from reading them uh, long before I started this project, I knew from reading them that they were really very much of their time, that they were documents of the 1950s um, and that there were moments, there were observations, there were sidelights, as I've said before, on the arrival of an electricity system um, Srinivas, another uh, person who I analyze in that section, and, and Srinivas's uh, great uh, sort of reconstructed ethnography, the Remembered Village, um, begins with his narrative of himself arriving in what to him as a city-dwelling Mysore Brahmin was you know the, the ends of the earth, the remotest place you could think of, except it was only three miles away and it was on the bus line to the city. So I knew that there were these these observations about infrastructure and transit and interconnections and sort of the shaping of both the physical and the imaginary spaces uh, that structure so much of the ethnological understanding of India, organized as, you know, decades of criticism have shown us around fixed binaries between village and city And uh, or rural and urban. And I wanted to go back to these texts and see what they said about electricity. That was really was that simple. It was a very uh, modest uh, intellectual ambition um, to return to these texts and read them against the grain of their reception as orientalizing or as about cast and 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 rurality and rural relations as against the city and modernity and technology i knew that the city and technology and modernity not in those terms, but in some other set of terms, both as pragmatic ethnographic observation, but also being theorized in a sense. Um, And as I went back and looked at these uh, texts, of course, you know, I was lucky enough to find things, sort of uh, comments that Marriott made in reviews that no ethnographer of modern India can afford to leave time and the city out of their account. You know, this is not a static society, obviously. This is not uh, an exercise in visiting some sort of historical museum of uh, Indian culture. This is a a living and uh, vibrant venue for asking questions that matter very much in the present to India's citizens themselves. And I I hope, I, I, I do have a hope that, in some ways, by returning to these texts, um, some that are still more canonical and read. I mean, I think uh, uh, Srinivas, uh, certainly so. But also these finer-grained debates between the uh, Marriott and sort of Chicago ethno-methodological school versus the more textualist uh, Dumont and Pocock working in the 50s at Oxford. Looking back to some of these debates and tracing how they provide a uh, ethnographic insight into India's post-colonial moment, I I hope will be one of the uh, contributions that 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 part of my book will make.
1: Definitely. And it was uh, very interesting to revisit these texts from my undergraduate days. So um, I just found them so much uh, less boring this time around, too. So that was great. But Fast forwarding to the last and contemporary section of your book, right, where you discuss the neighborhood activism, I want to begin by asking you to tell our listeners a little bit about your immersion experience. How did you... um, get into this uh, fraught space and you write a little bit about your reception and, you know, how unexpected that first meeting was for you. Will you share some of those experiences?
0: Yes. I I mean, I think the first thing to say is that doing traditional ethnographic fieldwork in a mega city uh, is not an easy task and uh, fieldwork is not what it used to be ethnographers have to be creative and flexible and persistent <laughs> and also uh, set aside some of our own preconceptions about exactly what will be a generative and productive ethnographic encounter uh, so I arrived in Delhi you know uh, fully prepared to be begin. begin uh, this this research on on the privatization, on post-privatization activism. How is uh, is citizenship, how are citizenship practices changing? How are uh, modes of participation changing in the aftermath of the privatization of the electricity system? And what I ended up focusing on was uh, a a, a largely elite, upper-middle class, Zone of uh, activism and contest that was constituted entirely by people living in legal, formally organized neighborhoods of Delhi that had these residents' welfare associations, um, sort of quasi-democratic local institutions for representing the interests of householders, homeowners, property owners in these elite neighborhoods in Delhi, and. I stumbled upon this really not by accident. I was, you know, taking interviews with people who were involved in the privatization process. I was thinking about the uh, everyday relationships to electricity and power, but the uh, really productive ethnographic engagement started early on when I resp- I would see ads in the newspaper um, for meetings of residents' Welfare Association, sort of uh, not local meetings in particular neighborhoods, but citywide coalition meetings. And I ended up going, I write about this in the book, I ended up going to an organizational meeting for a umbrella organization that still exists, though it's very, very different now than it was uh, then. The, the politics have shifted quite a bit. Um, So I ended up spending a great deal of time in auditoriums in Delhi, um, mingling with people from these, uh, formal, um, neighborhoods, um, neighborhoods that had really pretty good infrastructure, um, I I mention later in the book that at one point in my fieldwork, the electricity was cut off in the neighborhood I was living in. But uh, in fact, the deli that I was moving in, and I was really fascinated by this, was kind of indistinguishable from other global locations it was it's a global city right and the uh, the sort of stereotype of rolling blackouts and constant uh, struggles to uh, uh, to get infrastructure which are very tangible and very very real as experiences for a lot of citizens in Delhi were not at the center for the uh, group of people I was looking at and that difference really mattered to me I was interested by the fact that I was showing up in Delhi And I was having conversations with people about their electricity bills and about the meters that were tracking their uh, consumption and about questions about how to control consumption, about choosing to use uh, their air conditioners or not, right, thinking about the uh, cost that consumption were having for them. That kind of ethnographic space, for me, uh, represented an opportunity to think about the post-privatization city and the city that I think um, was on its way, a city where, not demographically, it's not that middle-class residents of Delhi are more representative of the city now. They're not. They continue to be a minority, but, um, but culturally dominant over the institutions, the practices, and the imagination of how you access infrastructure and get by in the city today.
1: Right, and I think I also found it interesting because in a way, your book is a departure from this you know, large literature that now exists on Delhi in terms of slum populations, urban dispossession, particularly the post-Commonwealth games, cleanup drive that the DDA underwent, right? And um, the, the protests that uh, came forth with that. So in that sense, yes, you know, this perhaps is a more privileged minority um, consumption-driven activism that you analyze, but that nonetheless reveals some of those larger connections between infrastructure and meaning and um, the state that you're interested in. And something you say in, I think this is your, second last chapter, but after your discussion on the Supreme Court case, right, which uh, ultimately went against the residents and the way you, you know, present that binary is that the Supreme Court's decision on one hand, you know, was really upholding the state's right to define what progress was and that it decided to interpret these distribution companies um push for these new electrical meters as more modern as more technologically sophisticated even though you know there really wasn't any material evidence that this was indeed the case, right? So this property right versus progress is how you characterize the Supreme Court's decision, I think.
0: So, yeah. The, the 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 centerpiece of my analysis in the book really is this uh, Supreme Court case, which is Supreme Court of India case that emerged out of uh, post-privatization. The new private companies, the DISCOMs or distribution companies, were uh, mandated by the state to upgrade metering, to improve the uh, ability of the city's electricity distribution system to be monitored and regulated at the point of consumption. And uh, this is, you know, unsurprising. Uh, every global document about how to improve a, uh, a large urban infrastructure network it emphasizes metering, emphasizes better flow of information, better flow of data, um, and better ability to charge people, right? That is ultimately what this comes down to. They wanted to be able to get people to pay more regularly for their electricity. And it's sort of a stereotype of uh, electricity systems in developing countries that uh, very often they're uh, disaggregated networks with lots of informal connections. People are connected behind meters or uh, their billing is in some way uh, jury rigged so they don't pay what uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, the forces of neoliberal order would consider their fair share of the cost of the infrastructure. So the DISCOMs installed new electronic meters that were able to uh, uh, calculate more precisely um, uh, household consumption and also were fraud uh, preventative. It was much more difficult to circumvent these meters than the older electromechanical meters. And yet, a very, very, uh, a resident from a very, very wealthy prominent Central Delhi neighborhood sued the distribution company saying it's totally unfair to take away my meter, the meter that uh, I personally own, which was the way it worked uh, back in the day that you, you you purchased your own meter and installed it. And then the electricity uh, service sent people around to read it or even neighborhoods Did their own reading of metering. Um, And I'm interested in how this uh, transformation from uh, what was self consciously presented as a sort of private economy within the household of owning your own meter, controlling your own consumption, managing your consumption, and then the according to the uh, complaint in this case, the electricity company, the new private electricity company, comes in and it takes away your rights and installs a new meter that controls you and, and forces you to pay them more than you think is, is fair or right. And the uh, Supreme Court, it was a complicated uh, series of, of hearings between the Delhi High Court and the Supreme Court, but ultimately the case was decided against the resident who was claiming a right to control his own electricity. And I thought this was very paradoxical because the whole idea of privatization was to allow people to control their own electricity. The distribution companies' advertisements for their new electricity meters had the slogan, choose your own meter, control your own electricity, um, but what uh, uh, curiously happened was there was this sort of return to the uh, 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 the the idea that the state itself embodies progress, and the Supreme Court ruled the meter itself embodies technological progress, and there's nothing in the law. That can stop us from allowing the, uh, or even for, uh, encouraging the distribution companies to take over the role of uh, metering and monitoring power. So they ultimately gave the uh, distribution companies a tremendous amount of uh, power to decide how they structured individual consumers' connections to the grid. And that I thought was an interesting moment, a sort of paradoxical moment in the you know, neoliberal moment in India, where uh, uh, what was ideologically presented as a matter of more consumer rights, more of the citizen consumer, the sort of the central figure of this neoliberal moment, is actually being subordinated to a corporate organization, a private corporation that has been granted a kind of role parallel to that that was once taken by the state. And I think that this is, you know, a, a, a key uh, ideological shift that the the corporation, the private company is uh, granted the same kind of investment in progress, and almost public good, um, uh, that was once, in some ways, more rationally attributed to a developmental state.
1: Right. And you mentioned this uh, very briefly in your conclusion, but... In so many ways, your analysis of uh, neighborhood associational politics as a kind of, you know, moral outrage, really preempts the anti-corruption, Amadmi Party-led protests of 2011, right?
0: Mm-hmm. From which I mean, the, the the I don't I don't have a chance to analyze this in the book, be, partly because of the uh, convention of sort of framing your your research around the the limits of a delimited fieldwork period, but also because uh, uh, I'm I'm partly as a consequence of my decision not to present a more sequential, more sort of joined up history, I do stop quite. Strictly um, uh, in 2008 or so, with the uh, conclusion of the Supreme Court case. Uh, but the uh, forces that emerge in 2011 in these large public protests against corruption, uh, the uh, adaptation of long standing repertoires of public and even sort of popular plebeian protest in Delhi um, by uh, uh, Arvind Kejriwal, the leader of the Ahmadmi Party, and by his uh, cooperation with the other activists uh, who were significant in that anti-corruption movement, including these techniques of protesting, including, you know, public fasts, dharna, um, sitting in front of government offices and blockading them, um, a lot of sort of mass mobilization. All of this paradoxically emerges directly out of the residents' Welfare Association uh, uh, sort of infrastructure, the movement that brings citizens into the public sphere. Initially, in my research, a kind of quasi-private public sphere, one of the things I write about is the way in which membership in and access to these, uh, these public meetings, these so-called public meetings, was quite strictly limited. Um, but it creates a space where I think there is a kind of uh, a mobilization of a new public and again, not a demographically representative public. This is, um, I quote a journalist pointing out that this RWA movement is not a mass movement uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but it becomes able to mobilize the appearances of a mass movement and the ritual techniques of a mass movement, and does ultimately in 2011 with the anti-corruption protests. Um, I'll say as a sidelight on uh, just how ethnography can sometimes work in a global media age, um, I was in the midst of, uh, some other projects and, uh, working on, on uh, I'd set aside work on this book, uh, in 2011 and I was doing dishes in my kitchen. Uh, when I was in Ohio. I was working in Ohio at the time. I was doing dishes in my kitchen one afternoon, listening to the radio. And there was a story about the anti-corruption protests in Delhi, at which point I was like, ah, I have to get back to this project. <laughs>
1: Um, Just uh, tying things in here, I noticed how, you know, there's this one continuous uh, thread running through the book uh, on your interest in infrastructure as this emblem of, you know, technical modernity that's not only just about development and progress, you know, materially and morally, but also this, and you call it, a magical, miraculous route of access to other worlds, right? That it's not just about interdependence, but about these interconnections, the terms of connection. Will you talk a little bit more about this?
0: Yeah, I think it's the the ethnographic idea that really animated the project all the way through. It's not that I had this idea at the beginning. I didn't. Um, I went to Delhi to do, you know, very conventional ethnography on an activist group and, you know, how they were mobilizing in relationship to state institutions and what this all represented about our political era. And yet... As I think back about the uh, encounters and conversations that interested me the most, it was when there was an excess of passion, of affect, of even of significance in a conversation about uh, the electricity system. It, 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 It seemed so mundane. And for obvious reasons, you know, consumer discontent, people being desiring something better than they have, or uh, wishing for access to cheaper, better commodities. I mean, all of this is in play. But that aside, aside from the sort of uh, standard point that people notice infrastructure when it breaks down, as I've said, a lot of the people I worked with had really regular access to electricity. Um, it wasn't just a sort of sense of oh things aren't as good as they should be and we should improve them there wasn't there was a an excess that was hard to put your finger on but it was present ethnographically and in the Last part of my book, I, I talk about this through works of art and through um, periodicals that use, uh, or magazine articles, that use a sort of image of a gleaming, illuminated electric sphere, uh, a nighttime city, um, the, the, the glow of lights on the high walls of the glass skyscrapers, of which there are very few, but they managed to make this claim anyhow around Connaught Place, um, These sorts of images of a transformed city, a city ablaze with promise and opportunity, or a nation ablaze with promise or an opportunity, ultimately, as I worked on this project and wrote this book, I spent a lot of time thinking about how to deal with uh, ethnographic moments like that or moments from uh, an archive like that. There were so many examples of uh, uh, the, the the presence of electric light, of electric power, the force of it being used as a way of uh, projecting a future. And not just a future, but also a, a, a sociological possibility, a possibility of solidarity, of collective progress, of belonging, of uh, development in the sort of uh, richest sense of the term, not just, you know, uh, installing new and better infrastructures, but, but moral development. So you know, this really brings me at least back to where you, you began, the questions you asked at the beginning about the, the structure of the book sort of pushing against or explicitly arguing against a teleology of technological progress part of the point of that problem is that so often a, a different kind of progress was being invoked at the same time, moral progress, uh, and, and, and the development of a, 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 a solidarity and a common bond, whether within the city or at the nation state level, um, uh, that was imagined by invoking some sort of electrical sphere. So all I'll say in... in Closing in answer to your question about it, yes, I do talk a lot about magic and the projection of other worlds and futures through talk about electricity. And part of that is just because um, you know uh, electricity is magical uh, in in <laughs> in all of our uh, uh, modern worlds. But it's also uh, uh, it's also because it was uh, it was something that that. Uh, enticed me and attracted me to keep going with this project as I uh, as I was working through it, because it kept coming up time and time again, both in historical materials, and in uh, my
1: ethnographic encounters. On that great note, what are you working on these days? I have done some work comparatively
0: between um, India and Scotland, thinking about them both as sort of uh, uh, constituents of a larger British empire, very differently situated, obviously, with very different histories. And um, I've been quite interested in exploring Scottish nationalism as a contemporary phenomenon that might be illuminated by a South Asian uh, informed scholar coming to uh, look at some of its claims in relationship to changing forms of belonging and statehood and uh, uh, mobilization, political mobilization uh, in our current conjuncture. So I've been spending quite a bit of time doing research on Scotland, but I'm also continuing to think about how this uh, uh, history, Um, ethnographic and cultural history and political history um, might shape um, thinking about uh, uh, comparative realities in the present. So one of the things I'm looking at is I'm thinking about ideas of, uh, corporate power. And, uh, you know, obviously this book, though it's not about this, um, in the background is a pretty significant series of shifts from, uh, 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 uh private control over infrastructures to nationalization and then to privatization. And so I'm still, um, engaged by the, uh, cultural and legal and, and meaningful dimensions of what we Uh, what we're doing when we uh, parcel out authority like that, whether to corporations or to governments or to uh, uh, communities in a a more uh, decentralized way. So I'm thinking about Scotland. I'm thinking about uh, Scotland and India together. And I'm I'm hoping to uh, have some uh, new thoughts on all these uh, topics soon.
1: Great. Well, thank you so much. For joining us here on New Books Network. That was Leo Coleman on his book, A Moral Technology Electrification as Political Ritual in New Delhi. Thank you so much, Leo.
0: Thank you so much, Madhuri.